This sermon for me has been unusually difficult. There's a handful of things I'll say this morning where I need to exercise extreme care. I need to choose my words as carefully as I can manage, and in those places, I'll need to make doubly sure that I'm not misunderstood. But strangely enough, that's not what made the sermon so difficult. You see, last week I didn't preach the gospel text. And while the parable of the Good Samaritan is without a doubt a cornerstone in biblical parables, I nevertheless chose instead to preach about sacraments. I felt it necessary to do so for several reasons. First, Anglicanism is deeply sacramental. Second, many of us do not come from an Anglican background and may therefore have very different understandings about what a sacrament is. And third, the sheer number of baptisms that we've had this year alone and the weekly engagement in the sacrament of the Eucharist meant something needed to be said. Judging from the feedback I got from several of you, I think it was helpful. If so, I'm grateful. However, as I sat down and tried to write this sermon, as I sat down and tried to unpack the story of Mary and Martha, one thing became painfully, painfully clear to me. The story of Mary and Martha hosting Jesus in their home is simply something I cannot preach if it's isolated from the rest of the chapter. As I struggled to put pen to paper, I realized in order to preach today's gospel text, I'll have to connect this week's text to last's. In order to preach about Mary and Martha, I'll have to preach about the Good Samaritan as well. You see, we've all heard sermons about Mary and Martha, and generally speaking, those sermons go something like this. Jesus is invited into a home, and two sisters greet him. One of the sisters, Martha, is busy working, frantically trying to meet the needs of those present in her home. But the other sister, Mary, she isn't doing that at all. Instead of helping her sister in the kitchen, instead of helping her sister take care of all the things that need to be done, Mary is more interested in listening to Jesus. She's more interested in sitting at his feet. And the application that is then given in that sermon is then this. It's easy for a Christian to be consumed with all the work that needs to be done, with all the things that need to be done, that we fail to sit at the feet of Jesus and just be with him. Now, guys, don't misunderstand me. I think that application is 100% true. I think it's easy for us to do exactly that. But I think there's more going on in today's gospel text than just a lesson about our priorities and how easy they can become misguided. Here's why. Two weeks ago, we began Luke chapter 10 with Jesus taking the unprecedented action of sending out the 72. Their mission was simple. Go into every town you find and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, cast out demons, pronounce peace on all those who receive you. But then Jesus said something that was quite shocking. Jesus said if they went into a town and the town did not receive them, they were to leave that town and shake the dirt from their shoes as they left. And on the surface, that verse sounds troubling. But what we found was that Jesus instructed his disciples to shake the dust from their feet, not because Jesus hated those towns, not because he relished the thought of their destruction. Not at all. What's happening in this verse was that Jesus couldn't spend one more second speaking to people who refused to listen. His time was so short that he couldn't spend another second pleading with hard-hearted people who saw the truth who knew the truth, people who had seen the miraculous, but they dismissed it all anyway. Jesus knew those people had heard the truth. He knew they had seen the truth, but those people hated the truth. So what they did was they suppressed the truth. 
They forbid it from being spoken. They attacked it. They redefined it. They changed truth to mean falsehood and falsehood to mean truth. People like that would do anything they could think to do with the words of Jesus except believe them. And then I used an analogy. I said people like that are like people on a sinking ship up to their waists in water and yet they refuse to admit it. Instead of believing what is plainly in front of them, they distort reality and they choose to believe lies. People like that are so far gone and time is so short that the only thing you could do in that situation is move on from them and go to people who would listen. You go to people who have, who have not hardened themselves to the truth and still have a chance to be saved. Shaking the dust from your feet is about understanding one crucial thing. There will be some people who absolutely refuse to believe the words of Christ. They will twist and turn and do everything in their power to continue in their non-belief no matter how overwhelming the evidence for the truth may be. If Jesus stood before him, them in all of his glory, they would say it was a hallucination. If they saw miracle after miracle, they would say it was an illusion. If they were on a ship that had a gaping hole in the side of it, if water was up to their waists, if the ship itself was tilted down at a 45-degree angle, they would argue that all of those things were evidence of the ship's seaworthiness. And then we said, while loving that kind of person is mandatory, Jesus says too, beating your head against a brick wall is not. You love them, you remain open to them and be tender to them, you forgive them and you pray that their eyes may be open, but you are released to move on from them. You are released not because we reject those who reject Christ. No. You're released because the days of this sinking ship are growing ever shorter, and there are those on this ship that would believe the words of Christ. They could escape the coming destruction if someone would just tell them. It's with that sense of overriding urgency that Luke chapter 10 begins. It's with that sense of seriousness that the rest of Luke chapter 10 has. And it's that same exact setting that we have to remember if we're going to understand the story of Mary and Martha. But before we can get to it, we have to unpack what's happening in the parable that Jesus tells just before, the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> now often this parable is discussed in some generalized moral sense. Something like, if you see someone in need, then helping them is the right thing to do. Now, of course, I think that's the right thing to do. I think that application is 100% true. I think helping those in need is a cornerstone of any Christian's life. But I think there's more going on in this parable than just helping those who are less fortunate. The hatred that the Jews and Samaritans had for one another was legendary. That hatred continues to this day, at least in part between the Jews and the Palestinians. Both sides claim to be the true inheritors of Abraham and Moses. Both sides see themselves as the lawful and rightful owners of the land. And that disagreement has been going on for over 2,000 years. There are reams and reams of information about the blood feud between Samaritans and Jews. Countless examples spanning hundreds of years of one side brutalizing the other only to have that brutalization returned in kind. About a hundred years before the birth of Christ, <clears throat> the Jews delivered a devastating blow. 
128 BC, during the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews marched into Samaria and destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans were despondent, and striking back immediately would be impossible. The Samaritans waited almost a century before they could take their revenge. But take their revenge they did. The Samaritans knew that any dead animal or person that touched a priest or Levite would defile them. If anything dead was brought into the Jewish temple, it too would become defiled. So in 4 BC, just a few years before the birth of Jesus, a group of Samaritans infiltrated the temple and did exactly that. They defiled the temple by throwing the bones of dead men in and around the temple yard and sanctuary. Could you imagine the outcry in Israel once they learned what the Samaritans had done? It's into that explosive, emotionally charged environment that Jesus spoke this parable. The teacher of the law asked Jesus, what should I do in order to inherit life in the age to come? And Jesus responded, what's written in the law? The lawyer responded and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus looked at the lawyer and said, you're exactly right. Do that and you'll live. But the lawyer didn't seem satisfied with the answer. So he asked Jesus another question. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's to that question that the parable of the Good Samaritan is told. But you'll notice something seems out of place in this parable. The parable doesn't show a Jew stopping to help a Samaritan. It's actually reversed. You have a Samaritan that's stopping to help a Jew. Now, why is Jesus doing that? If the lesson Jesus wanted to teach this lawyer was that people like the Samaritans people that the Jews hated and despised, even people like that were indeed their neighbors. Why not show a priest or a Levite helping those less fortunate? Why not show a priest or a Levite overcoming their anger and hatred and stopping on the side of the road to help out the lowly and despised? Why not show a Jewish holy man helping someone beneath him, someone that he had every reason to hate? Why not if this parable is about that very thing. I think it's because this parable is about something slightly different. I think the reason Jesus uses a Samaritan as the good guy in his parable, the reason that he shows a priest and a Levite pass by, is because Jesus was describing the kingdom of God and the kind of people who might reside in it. In this parable, we see that someone like a Samaritan could embody all of the qualities of a righteous person. This parable shows a Samaritan as someone who is capable of embodying all of the qualities of those who have the life of God in them. Jesus is telling the lawyer that the Samaritans would not be kept out of God's kingdom simply because they were born Samaritans. They could enter His kingdom through repentance and reside with the God of Israel. People like tax collectors and prostitutes, people formerly possessed by demons, people who had leprosy, people caught in adultery, all of the wretched and despised, anyone, could enter the kingdom of God if they repent. Every single person could enter the kingdom by entering through the king himself. And the flip side was also true. Priests and Levites aren't in the kingdom of Jesus just because they were born in Israel. 
If they want to reside in the kingdom he was establishing, Pharisees and Sadducees, rabbis and lawyers would enter his kingdom no differently than anyone else. They would enter through repentance. They would enter only through Christ. It's hard for us to grasp what a seismic shift in thinking that would have been for almost any Jew who heard it. The kingdom of God and those who reside in it was not about your bloodline. It was not about your family pedigree or social standing in the religious community. It wasn't even about the number or severity of sins you committed. Nope. It was about repentance of those sins. It was about the forgiveness of those sins. It was about receiving the very life of the king himself. And that just sounds like the gospel to us. But guys, we do this parable a disservice if we fail to see just how shocking this was when Jesus first said it. Luke 10 begins with a strong sense of urgency, a message of utter seriousness, and it builds upon that foundation with a parable that is so charged in language and in history that it cannot be overstated. In building upon that incredible parable, you have the story of Mary and Martha. And guys, it is that very progression of Luke 10 that makes it very hard for me to see this story as just some generalized story about our priorities. There must be some connection that it shares with the rest of the chapter. You see, I think the story of Mary and Martha is every bit as radical and culturally charged as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think in the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus speaks about changes and concepts so radical that those who first heard them must have been absolutely floored by what he said. I don't think the real problem between Mary and Martha was that Martha needed help in the kitchen. I don't think that it was Mary was being too spiritual or that Martha was being too practical. No. And this... (laughs) This is where I must choose my words carefully and be as clear as possible. I think the real problem in today's gospel text was that Mary was engaged in an activity that was exclusively reserved for men. Mary was doing something that only men did. She was in a place where only men could go. You see, in that culture, houses themselves were divided into male and female spaces. The roles of men and women Their expectations were also very clearly distinguished. And what Mary did by walking into that room and sitting at the feet of Jesus was crossing a very important boundary within the house and another equally important boundary within the society. The public room is where the men would gather, where the men would meet, where a rabbi might teach other men. The kitchen and other parts of the house, usually that aren't seen by outsiders, belong to the women. Men and women may mix outside in the context of family events or in the marriage bed, but for a woman to settle down this comfortably among men bordered on the scandalous. Who did Mary think she was? Only a shameless woman would behave like this. But Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary. He doesn't ask her to leave. He doesn't seem to think Mary's done anything inappropriate at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to tenderly rebuke Martha. Jesus affirms that what Mary is doing is completely fine with the Messiah, even if it upsets their cultural distinctions between men and women. So guys, what in the world is going on here? 
Is Jesus saying there's no distinctions between men and women? Is Jesus saying that men and women are interchangeable in any given situation because there's no defining characteristics of either sex? Has Father Charles become a gender studies professor? (laughs) And the answer to all of those questions is no. To see what's really going on here, we must recall the point that Jesus makes in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point Jesus makes in that parable is that the Jewish religious community had drawn illegitimate boundaries around who can inhabit the kingdom of God. They wrongly determined that someone like a Samaritan by their condition of birth could never enter God's kingdom and that someone like a priest or a Levite must be a shoe-in for the exact same reason. But Jesus responds with a parable that makes it clear to the lawyer, your expectations about the kingdom of God are wrong and as a consequence, the demarcations that you have placed around it concerning who's in and who's out, they're wrong as well. And I think Jesus is making that exact same point in the story of Mary and Martha. The Jewish culture had clearly delineated lines between men and women, clear expectations around who could do what and where it could be done. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus wasn't critiquing the existence of gender roles. He wasn't abolishing all distinctions between the sexes. He wasn't saying that men and women are purely interchangeable in how they might serve the kingdom. He was not. There was nothing wrong with having clear distinctions between men and women. There was nothing inherently misogynistic or abusive with gender roles. The boundaries drawn in the Jewish culture around the sexes were attempts to rightly orient themselves to one another. Attempts to rightly orient men and women towards one another and towards God. This was their intended purpose. But for as good as their intentions may have been, it seems that those well-intentioned cultural lines that were drawn around men and women were now being redrawn by Jesus. Jesus was in a habit of doing this kind of stuff. When he said that he came to abolish the law, not to abolish the law but but to fulfill it, He wasn't saying that the law was a mistake. He was saying that the purpose of the law was being realized in him. When Jesus eats the Last Supper with the disciples and gives them a new command, a new meal, he pronounces the Passover meal as they knew it at an end. But it wasn't because the Passover meal was wrong. It just wasn't complete. The Passover meal would find its completion in him. Jesus has shown countless times that his plans and ideas and boundaries that he sets are not dictated to him by the cultures of this world. No. The story of Mary and Martha seems to show us that in the kingdom of God, there is its own set of boundaries. The kingdom of God has its own set of expectations and roles. And the boundaries that are set in his kingdom are set by the king himself. The culture that is formed in his kingdom is a reflection of God himself. And in that kingdom, anyone, even Samaritans, can walk the streets as redeemed men, possessing the very life of God, no matter how repugnant that may sound to you. In his kingdom, there is nothing wrong with Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus because he calls every single person in the whole world to that exact place. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman are all called to sit at the feet of Jesus 
and receive everything he has to offer them. And if that offends some cultural sensibility we have, then we can rest easy because the king himself has ruled it to be a good thing. Amen.